live from the JLE in London, you're listening to History for the Curious, the podcast. 20 minutes with Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch, hosted by myself, Menat Reisner. Join us as we cross continents, sail through the centuries, tracing lives, uncovering events, and following epic journeys to reveal the untold stories and the mysteries that have impacted our history and shaped us into who we are today. And welcome back to part two of the Maharal of Prague series. This is together with Rabbi Hirsch and Rabbi Tatz. Thank you both for making the effort to come back. This will be followed, as mentioned last week, by a trip to Prague from the 3rd to the 6th of November. Is that right, Rabbi Hirsch? Yes, correct. And that will be with both Rabbi Hirsch and Rabbi Tatz, and you'd be silly to miss it. Rabbi Hirsch... I'm going to let you go first because you left us as you do with so many questions last week. I want to recap on the big three that you left off with. Was there a golem? Although I could guess what you're going to say about that. Why was the Maral arrested? And who was he married to? Okay, I can't just get away with saying no comment to those three, I guess. <laughs> Perhaps, though, to start with uh, adding to the idea that Rabbi Tatz spoke about last week, the concept of three being so central to the Maral and to Pirkei Ovis. So we find in one of the most famous statements of our sages, the world stands on three things, Torah, Avodah, and Gemilus Chasodim. Now, given that we are able to count to three on our own, the Mishnah could just have said the world stands on Torah, Avodah, and Gemilus Chasodim. I didn't need to be told that this adds up to three. But what the Maral explains is that they are, in fact, only these three, and secondly, that the three are intimately related to each other they create between them a, a trilogy and you know further the, the idea that the morale wrote often in philosophical terms what we nowadays come across in kabbalistic terms is a very good example of this in that we refer to chesed Gvura, and tiferes and it is framed in thesis antithesis and synthesis in a more philosophical uh, vocabulary. That was a bit of a tongue twister right there. <laughs> okay, so let's continue with the rest of the story of his life. So we left off the Maral in the 1590s. He failed to secure the rabbinic position in Prague in 1592, and he returns to Posen. What happens next? Yes, so he is in Posen, Poznan as it is nowadays, for another four years, continues uh, writing and teaching. And finally, by 1597, probably 1596, in his mid-70s, perhaps in his mid-80s, he becomes the chief rabbi of Prague. Uh, we have a document dated the 1st of January 1597, and the Maral is mentioned as the chief rabbi, as the head of the Bezdin and of the yeshiva. Now, five years later, an astonishing event takes place. There are two Jews, one Shimon Leib, the other Moshe Trantik, who went to the non-Jewish authorities with the accusation that the heads of the community were responsible for the death of a Jew called Eliel Pollock, and that they had also been asked to poison a non-Jew called Nicholas Price. 
As a result of this accusation, Rabbi Sol Hendlish, the head of the Kehillah, and Avram Shikla were arrested and brought to the Berglitz Castle. And a few days later, on Shabbos, which was actually Tishabov, the 27th of July, 1602, they arrested the Maral, who was the rabbi of the town, and a man in his 80s. Two days later, from Monday, the 11th of Av, all the shuls in Prague were closed. No minyanim were allowed for more than four weeks. Others were arrested in order to sort of testify about these deaths. And given the danger that existed, the community proclaimed days of, of fasting, of repentance, and they wrote to other kehillahs to help them in this way too. Two months later, all of them are still being held in prison. So the Prague community observed two days of Yom Kippur. They fasted for two days. And then eventually, with a combination of prayer and bribery, the prisoners were released on a large bail on 26th September 1602, which means it's almost 420 years to the day. And then, as things unfolded, the Kehillah managed to get both Jews and Christians to testify that this was simply a fabricated charge. And eventually the tables are turned, the two informers are arrested, Shimon Leib dies in prison, and Moshe Trentik is released from jail, has to sign and swear that he would never enter or live in Prague again. Wow. Do we know who these people were? Why they did that? We don't know anymore. Probably because, it, since it was a government matter, they couldn't write details beyond, you know, sort of obvious names and dates. Right. And then, less than seven years after his release, the Maharal, the most important figure at the time in Jewish Prague, dies on the 18th of Elul, 5369, which is the 17th of September, 1609. And on his tombstone, it is written that he wrote commentary on Gomorrah, Rashi, and Tosfus on the whole of the Talmud, and many responsa, which, because of our sins, burned in the fire of 1689. And subsequently, the grave of this individual, who was quite harshly treated by the city during his lifetime, became a site of prayer, in fact, even of tourism. Before World War II, there are responsa about allowing non-Jews to visit the grave. And this is how most people became aware of him. But it is a misreading of history to call him the morale of Prague regarding his own lifetime. It's really afterwards. Although talking about his writings, there's one other interesting element. The Maral published most of his works in the sort of 30 years between 1578 and 1609, most printed in Prague. And we know that the Maral was regarded as a, a scholar during his lifetime, and even more so probably after his death. Yet this esteem was not accompanied by interest in his writings. There is a sort of a divide between the respect for him as a scholar and interest in his Torah. You know, we spoke last week of his many frustrations implementing his educational reforms, but on a much more basic level, during almost 200 years between his death in 1609 and the end of the 18th century, not one new edition of any of his works on Jewish thought were printed. 
several sidurim, but nothing else. And really what changed the situation was Hasidus. The renewed interest in the morale originates mainly in the Hasidic movement, especially in Poland. The Magid of Koznitz was very invested in the morale's thoughts. He wrote uh, commentaries, explanations on Gvor Sashem, on their mitzvah, Be'er Agoyla, some of which were then printed with the morale's works. And after the death of the Koznitz Magid in 1814, this uh, approach was adopted by Rupsimchabunim of Pshischch and then by the Kotzka Rebbe and subsequently by the Svasemes, which basically takes the Maral's writings all the way through the 19th century. And there's a, you know, a wave of publishing of the Maral's works towards the second half of the 19th century, mostly in Warsaw. Why do you think it's the Hasidic movement in particular that sort of revived his writings? Well, it's particularly this branch of Hasidus. They were very much of the school of thought that brought together Gomorrah and Machshava. So the study of Talmud and the study of esoteric topics. In fact, the Kotzka would say that the Svarim of the Maral give you the ability, the, the Seichel, the Svara, to be able to understand Gomorrah and Halacha. Closer to our times, England played a role in the publishing of the Maral. They discovered the Maral's commentaries on the Agodos of Talmud, the, so to speak, stories, if one can put it that way. They were in manuscript form in Oxford, and they were printed as Chidushe Agodos between 1958 and 1960. So, you're just being patriotic, aren't you? Yes, exactly. <laughs> you mentioned last week, I remember, that his son did not take over his position. Can you expand yes. on that a bit? His son, Batsalel, named after the Maral's father, went to Kolin, which is a nearby city where he's buried, and we had the merit of going there with Ramesh Shapir in 2017. It was actually Rebefraim Lunchitz, the author of the Kliokor, who took over from the Maral until his own passing in 1619. And in the biography with errors which was written a century after the Maral died, there is an astonishing claim there where we are told that uh, Rebetzalel became angry and left for Colleen, where he founded a yeshiva, because he wasn't given the position of Rosh Yeshiva in Prague, taking over from his father. But this is a factual error. The Maral's son died in 1599, and the Kliokor wasn't elected until four years later to take over some of the Maral's functions in town, which was about five years before the Maral died, but well after the Maral's son had already passed away. And even then, Rav Lunchitz, the claim that he was named the head of the yeshiva is untrue. It's the position of the head of the Bezdin which the Maral gave up because that was much more of a burden. And anyway, Prague would probably not have given the position to a direct male descendant of the Maral anyway, because it was one of the largest and most prestigious Jewish posts in the world, and it would risk creating a dynastic claim on the position for all future generations. So basically, the Maral's son left town because Colleen was a good position, and he was both the Rav and the Rosh Hashiva, so 
beware of biographies which make unsourced statements. Which leads us somewhat to the golem. You still do have a couple of questions to answer. I do. I will end with two well-known stories about the Maral, both to be found in Niflois Hamaral, his marriage and the account of the golem. Right. And you're going to tell us that neither is true, of course marriage as well. I am going to examine the evidence, <laughs> admittedly actual evidence as opposed to legendary evidence. Okay, all ears. Now, I'm not going to tell you what to believe. I will just present the facts. So there is a famous story about the Maral's marriage. It can be found on many websites and, you know, in literature. He was engaged to the daughter of the rich Rubschmelka, who lost all his money and therefore wrote to the Maral, allowing him to break off the Shidduch. The Maral receives this letter from his, so to speak, future father-in-law, explaining the situation, releasing him from his promise to marry Pearl. And the Maral replies that he will marry her regardless of financial considerations, unless she was unwilling to wait for him. And then the Maral continues learning in the city that he was in, which was possibly Lublin, for the next 12 years until they have enough money saved to be able to marry. And then war arrives in Bohemia. His fiancée, who was now supporting herself and her parents by running a bakery and had also been studying Torah during the period of the separation, was now 28 years old. One day, a soldier entered her store and demanded uh, food, bread. She asks for payment, and he said, I don't have any money. So she says to him, you know, this shop is their entire source of support, the entire family. And he is moved by her words and gives her an embroidered garment as a pledge, promising that he's going to be back the next day or within the next few days. And many days passed. And the soldier doesn't reappear. Presumably, he was killed in subsequent battle. So she now takes a longer look at this garment, and she opens the lining and discovers a precious stone or a gold coin. She writes to the Maral, telling him that they now could marry. She is 28, and he is 32. It is a, a lovely story, it's romantic, it speaks of loyalty, destiny, and many other things, and has touched the hearts of so many people through the generations. Which you're about to break, of course. I'm not going to tell you it's untrue. Instead, I will come at it from a completely different angle. The morals, writings, and beliefs. As we mentioned earlier, in connection with the ages at which to learn Mishnah and Talmud, he was a firm believer in the timeline in the Mishnah in Pirkei Ovis, which writes that at 18 one should get married, and at the very latest by 20. Not just as simply an age, but the Maral explains how a person develops specifically at that time. And he follows this up in his commentary by saying that after that age, if one is unmarried, he is cursed by God. And we know that in practice, his family did marry at that age, beyond the fact that in most advanced rabbinic or economic circles, they were married by 20. 
So the idea that he would just hold out for his bachet is unlikely. You know, maybe he saw this in the stars and therefore understood that it was to be, could be. Or could be even more romantic, that he just didn't want to break her heart and, and leave her hanging after her father lost all her money. And is prepared to be cursed by gods for the sake of this. Maybe. Absolutely. There is another unreason to undo the idea. The Chavoysioir. Rav Yorich Yorchaim Bachrach, who is buried in Vons and was one of the greatest halachic authorities of the 17th century, although I don't believe we have yet mentioned him in any of the podcasts to date. We need to remedy that. But the Chavisio makes it clear that as well as him being a direct descendant of the Maharal through his grandmother, his ancestor's sister was married to the Maharal. And this would mean that the mystery is solved with a very simple matter. The Maral was married twice, which removes the need for the long wait and the poverty and the contradiction with his writings. It is clear that Pearl was the mother of at least five of his daughters and his son. And the rich Rupschmelke does exist. He's buried in the old Jewish cemetery, died on the 24th of October, 1557. His wealth is evidenced by the Prague tax register, but he doesn't seem to have suffered any financial setbacks, and they are not mentioned on his Matseva or in any town records. So... <laughs> You're saying that the yeah. Prague tax register goes back 450 years? Yeah, sure. Wow. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> We're up to the golem. Okay. Uh, so, introduction here. Let's be clear. The creation of a golem is written in a number of reliable Kabbalistic sources, as is the fact that the Vilnagon attempted to create one and he was stopped, uh, that Rebilio, the Balsham of Helm, created one, which is attested by his descendant, the Chacham Tzvi, who in turn was the father of Yaakov Emden. So, the question isn't could a golem be created, but did the Maral create one? The sources generally quoted, or the source, is Niflois Maral, uh, which we mentioned by Revudel Rosenberg, who was initially a Dian in Warsaw at the end of the 19th century. And Revudel writes that he found an old manuscript in the Royal Library in Metz, which was a book written by the Maharal's son-in-law, Shimshon who was a participant in the creation of the Golem. And the Golem was created in Prague by the Maharal in 1572, when he was the Rav there, in the era of Rudolf II. And they had to contend with the problem of blood libels and Christian persecution, specifically under the auspices of Cardinal Sylvester. And the stories are much as we know them, as is the end of the golem's existence. The golem had the three letters, Aleph, Mem, Tof, MS, written on his forehead. The Maharal removed the first of those letters, which now meant it spelt mace, dead, and the golem simply ceased to be. And the Maharal placed the golem in the attic of the shul. Okay, the problems are almost endless and many of them are masterfully put together by Rupschneer Zalman Lyman. Rudolf II wasn't the king in 1572 yet. Ferdinand was. The Maral wasn't the Rav in Prague in 1572. In fact, he wasn't even in town yet. He was in Moravia. There was never a Cardinal Sylvester in Prague, not in the 16th century, nor subsequent. Oh, and there was never a royal library in Metz. <laughs> 
Um, but as Rabbi Lyman explains, These details. Yeah. <laughs> more fool you for believing Rebutal's account as being written as a true account. Towards the end of Rebutal's life, they issued a safer in his honor, which listed all that he had written, and it's divided into three halachic works. Kabbalah and uh, Drush sermons, and Volksgeschriften, storybooks, which were basically embellished tales. He wrote them as tales for people to read instead of non-Jewish literature. That's how he meant them to be read. Admittedly, he's not the only source that talks about the Golem by far, although really the first written source that gives voice to this legend doesn't appear until at least 1840, which is 230 years after the Merle dies. It had an oral popularity before 1840. Gershon Sholem writes that the Golem legend was transferred from Elio, the Baal Shem of Helm that we mentioned earlier, to Rabbi Lerv at a late date. And there's speculation that maybe Polish Hasidus generated this connection to the Maral and to Prague. Of course, the fact that he met with the Emperor Rudolf in 1592, who was known to be into alchemy, astronomy, astrology, no doubt fueled the fact that the Maral was not only into the theory of Kabbalah, but its practice. And there is the fact that in the 13th century Altneuschul, there is a unique liturgy in Friday Night Davening. Mizmer Shirliyom HaShabbos, Tehillim number 92, the one said for Shabbos, is said and then repeated before the Chazan starts Mariv. And it's often explained as being the results of the events of a Friday evening when the golem ran amok and the moral had to intervene. But in order for Shabbos not to have been broken, the moral instituted a second recital of that to him every Shabbos. And indeed, to this very day, that's what the Alt-Noshul does on Friday night. So what other reason could there be for saying Mizmashir twice? Well... All of Kabbalah's Shabbos, in other words, having this whole interlude, L'chadoidi, etc., was all very new. It was instituted in Tzvas just then. And one reason given for saying that to Tehillim twice was that they sort of heralded in Shabbos with L'chadoidi, accompanied by musical instruments, and then stopped at the point that they were about to bring in Shabbos halachically, which was then marked by repeating Mizmashir a second time. I will end by saying that you still wouldn't catch me going up into the attic of the Maral Shul. <laughs> so I do leave the final decision to all of you listeners. No, no, I'm, I'm not going to let you get away with just that, Rabbi Hirsch. Well, there's um, more to be said, but you have to come to Prague. That's I was going to say the biggest question of all is the fact that there's a Golem restaurant around the corner. Oh, then, Why then, would they have called it the Golem's yeah, restaurant? Absolutely, yes. There's the Golem's on sale. You can't walk 20 foot in Prague without being assailed. I'm sure. But can I just ask, although, of course, a trip to Prague is what is needed, can I just ask about the eyewitness accounts, the apparent eyewitness accounts no, of people who have been into the attic? The famous and, story of a soldier or someone yeah, who went up and didn't come down. I'm only prepared to <laughs> talk, talk about, about that in Prague. But yes, I have actually spoken to somebody who spoke to the Gabai of the Maral Shul who was present when the two Nazis climbed 
the steps. Wow. Okay. So we'll see you in Prague. Absolutely. <laughs> now, I will say there are still some morale-related matters to attend to, but we will do this in the course of our next series, which is on the people of the book, or really the printers of the book, which will cover apostates, pioneers, women, and forgeries. Wow, thank you again, Rabbi Hirsch. That was brilliant again. I guess a visit to Prague or opening up the Maurel's writings will never quite be the same. So thank you for that. And once again, Rabbi Tetz, welcome back. Thank you again for joining us. To complete our understanding of the Maurel, I'd like to ask you to share with us an idea and perhaps bring his idea to life. Of course, the more you understand the history of someone, the more context you get. But there's nothing quite like hearing his thinking. Yes, thank you very much indeed. I must say I've been a, a privilege to visit Prague with Rabbi Hirsch on more than one occasion. It's been quite amazing. In previous years, we went there with Ramosha Shapiro. I'll never forget going into the cemetery, the Maral, where the Maral was buried very early in the morning before they opened it to the tourists. And I'll never forget Ramosha Shapiro lying down on the grave. Really? Climbing oh. onto the tzion, you know, very, very moving. Yeah, that was very, very special, of course. And since Ramosha was a person who brought the Maral to life, we used to, I must tell you, we used to learn in the Maral shul at night, you know, two, three in the morning when no one was there. Rabbi Hirsch was able to get us the keys and we went in there. I'll never forget one night in the middle of the night sitting there. And as you probably know, the seats are all numbered, right? The seats are all numbered. Yeah. So someone asked Ramosha a question, Ramosha Shapiro a question. So Ramosha said to him, what seat are you sitting in? The fellow looked on the back and he said, 73. Gematria Golem, right? Uh, <laughs> he said, 73, let's think about that, Golem, uh, whatever the seat number was, right? Uh, 40, 70, whatever it was anyway. So we had some amazing experiences in Prague. Yes, you asked me about his ideas. Well, first and foremost, I would say, he taught us to appreciate Chazal, our great sages' statements, in a completely new way. One of the problems that the Maral dealt with was entering an era where people might be a little too superficial in their understanding. In other words, people might look, and again, we're going back to the 1600s, right? Like the 1500s, he, he spanned the boundary between the 15 and 1600s, as we mentioned last time. People could read a piece of Maral or a piece of our our great Agadita, in other words, our great commentaries of our sages, Talmudic commentaries, and mistakenly assume they were speaking superficially. Let's remember that many of the Agadic statements, which means our more, let's call it Kabbalistic or philosophical statements in the Talmud, are couched in very simplistic seeming analogies. So you'll have fantastic sounding and literally fabulous sorts of, you know, things which sound like the product of an inflamed ima imagination. And people will think either that the sages, you know, were simplistic, didn't know what they were talking about, failing to realize that the sages are using very, very veiled Masholim analogies to convey very, very deep ideas. In fact, the style of our sages in this area is to speak extremely simply, to hide extremely deep and, and complex ideas. Why was it done that way? Well, one of the reasons for that, of course, is to keep people out. In other words, when you're dealing with dangerous material that can easily be misunderstood, you want to use a, a disarming tool to keep those who should not be invading this territory, to keep them out. It was worth the price of, of outsiders mocking as well, the simplicity of it. Indeed, as long as it indeed that was a decision. Indeed. I think the solution to that question, however, is that those who wish to mock and be negative are probably going to do that anyway. Right. So there's not too much of a price to pay. There's a deeper reason as well, and that is you're talking about abstractions that can't be put into words anyway, which means that when you teach the deepest of Kabbalistic ideas, the words we use are always at some level metaphorical. 
which means that you are bound to talk in a way that is one step removed from the abstraction, requiring the listener to make that transition. Once you're doing that, it makes no difference if you speak in a very simplistic right. sounding analogy or something. As an extreme example, we could say it's like when the Torah describes different acts of Hashem or say the hand of Hashem and the arm of Hashem just because we have no point of reference. Indeed. That itself is a deep subject, but I, I think that's very closely related. So the Maral was a campaigner for bringing to our attention, lest you think that any detail in our Chazal, our sages, is superficial and simply extraneous or not significant, he made a very specific and great conscious point of teaching that the faintest nuance in the words of our sages is incredibly significant. In fact, he wrote a whole book about that. It's called Be'er Agayla, one of his great works. And what he does in that work is quite an outstanding and unusual work. Not only does he do his normal job of interpreting and showing you the deeper meaning behind the statements and sages, in that book he actually shows you how it's done. It peels back the veil. He starts by telling you that lest you think that our sages speak in overly simplistic ways, let me show you what lies behind the surface in Chazal. So he teaches you that this is a common mistake. One may fall into that error. It's a tragic error. You dare not do that. And here's how to avoid the error. And then what he does in the rest of the book is he chooses examples of the most fantastic sounding and the most easily misunderstood statements and areas in which our sages spoke and shows you, contrary to what seems like a almost childlike surface meaning, how sophisticated the philosophical idea is beneath the surface. And he, he wrote a whole book on that. So, of course, that's a great classic and is probably the definitive work on showing you how to make a very serious beginner's error of thinking that our sages speak simply when they appear to be speaking simply. But isn't that going against the very reason why it was written that way in order to keep out the people who wouldn't understand it on face value? Indeed. So the answer to that question is that when Maral teaches these things by revealing them, he does it with a delicate touch. In other words, he's not coming to reveal things at a level that should not be revealed. These things have to be always delicately done. But when the Maral felt that we're entering an age, there is a principle in Kabbalistic teaching that as history progresses, it becomes more acceptable and even more necessary to reveal greater depth. This is based on a Zohar, which says that was once esoteric and beyond reach of a generation, as history progresses, as we become lower intellectually and spiritually, nevertheless, we need more of the mystical revelation. And so the light comes down closer to the world, and that's another reason why some of these Kabbalistic ideas can be slightly more explicitly taught as the generations go by. But be that as it may, he came to to reveal. We might also say that he felt we ought to be prepared to pay the price of some degree of revelation to show people that they should not make the other error of thinking that there's nothing deeper here at all. So that's a great classic work that he wrote. Let me just spend a few minutes giving you an, an example. You asked me, you know, what, what areas did he teach and how did he put them across? I'll share with you just one that, that comes to mind, which is particularly beautiful. I mean, it's very difficult to say that about him because everything that he does is exquisitely beautiful. But here's one idea that I'm sure our listeners will, will enjoy. You know, there's a question about Jewish history which deals with the period of the Mashiach, the Messianic period. And it's a fundamental question. Many of our commentaries deal with this. Among them, the great Kabbalist, the Bala Leshem, who lived a long time after the Maharal, died about 100 years ago. The question that's asked is, why do we really need a Messianic era? The principle that the Gemara teaches us is, there's a phase of work and a phase of reward. 
there's weekdays and there's Shabbos. After all, during the week you work, you prepare. On Shabbat, you eat what you prepared. We live in this world to serve, do mitzvahs, deal with what we have to deal with, is, and then we die, and we enter another world, and eventually a full world to come, in which we will be rewarded. And the phrasing in the Talmud is, Hayoyim la sotam, today your job is to do them, tomorrow you receive the reward. Therefore, the perplexing question is, why do we need a third phase? So the pattern we have of history is 6,000 years of world history, and then 1,000 years of the world to come. But in between the two, during the last years, the last period of the world as we know it, will be a transition into a halfway zone, a messianic era, which is neither this world nor the next world, but has features of both. Semi-miraculous, uh, some free will, but not all, some sacrifices, but not all, some Torah, but not all, really intermediate zone between the world as we know it and the world to come. In fact, I might add, as the Baladashim points out, if you look through our, the statements of our sages, you find innumerable contradictions about that phase. For example, in one place it says that Torah will operate normally, in another place it says only only the Chumash and, and the book of Joshua and the Megillah of Esther. Another place says only Megillah of Esther. Another place says we'll be performing mitzvahs. Another place says no mitzvahs. Free will, yes, but less than now, no free will at all. Sacrifices, yes. Another place says only one sacrifice, the Koban Teda, the Thanksgiving offering. Other place says none. So there are innumerable contradictions. Will people die during that era? One opinion, yes, but only after hundreds of years of living. Another opinion, no death at all. So even the order of resurrection of the dead is subject to major, major arguments. How can there be so many arguments about the Messianic era? And we'll try, to, we'll try to answer that as well. But the fundamental question is that the Maharal comes to deal with these why three phases? You work, you get reward, you know. So why do we need this world, an intermediate world, having some features of this world and some features of the world to come, and then a third phase which is the world to come? And the Maharal in an absolutely classic piece, if our listeners would like to look it up, it's in the 46th chapter of Netzach Israel great classic work that he wrote about exile and redemption um, and the difficulties of the exile in Perik Memvav, he asks this, this question. And he points out that if you think about it, you'll realize that in life as we know it, we do have three phases. We have weekdays and we have Shabbat, but we also have festivals. That's very interesting. We have three phases of Jewish history. We have weekdays, we have Rosh Chodesh and festivals, which are related, and then we have, we have Shabbat. And the laws, indeed, of the festivals are intermediate. You can do some work on festivals, but only some. You can do cooking, for example, with certain conditions. You can carry with certain conditions. Very interesting. So we have three halachic categories. We have weekdays where you can work fully. We have a Yom Tov or a Chag, which is not a life and death punishment issue as Shabbat is. It's less serious or severe. It is halfway between weekdays and Shabbat. Then you have a third phase on Shabbat, which you can do no work. You cannot carry between one domain and another. Breaking Shabbos is a life and death question. Three phases very clearly. What does this mean? Listen to the Maral's answer, which is out of this world. I'm doing a little paraphrasing. You'll permit me just to speak out a bit more fully. He says, he says this only in one page. But to be a little bit more full, as we heard this from Ramosha Shapiro, here's the concept. What Maral brings to our attention is based on sources, of course, and based on a Rambam. More than one place in the Rambam speaks about this. The problem is this. Let's say you live a life to the best of your ability in this world. And then you die, and you are going to be resurrected in another world. Do we feel ready? 
Is there anyone who can say they feel ready? That they've reached their perfection? That they've learned all the Torah they could and built their personality to absolute perfection? Very hard to imagine there's anyone alive who can say that they reached perfection. Which means that tragically, we are going to enter a world to come unready. That'll be a cause of tremendous mortification, suffering, regret. Imagine your life is cut short. You live 70 years, 80, 90, 120 years. Your life is then cut short. And not having reached your perfection, you'll enter another world of eternity unready. Very, very tragic. And I would suggest even unfair. Why? Because during life as we know it now, it's impossible to reach your perfection. You have illness, you have limited intellect, you have the necessity to support a family, you have strife and, and tensions, you have wars going on, you have all sorts of illnesses. And, you know, can a person really relax with no worries and no anxieties and really work on themselves and do medicines and fulfill? Really not. Which means that even with the best will in the world, you cannot reach perfection. There are limitations due to the world around us that hinder us from reaching our potential. So here's what God says. God says, you know what? I don't want you to enter the next world unready. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to give you a phase which is intermediate between the two. Intermediate. During that phase, you will be able to bring yourself to perfection, but with one condition. You'll only be able to work on the things and bring them to perfection that you tried before. If you live in your life and you were cut short, weren't able to reach perfection because of an illness and suffering and pain, you tried. You tried your best. And through no fault of yours, you were limited. Hashem will say, you know what? I don't play unfair. I'll give you a period of rocket-powered assistance. No wars, no strife, no illnesses, no worries, no anti-Semitism. A world of incredible peaceful cooperation. And in that world, all you will have to do is continue the work that you tried and through no fault of yours found yourself limited to bring yourself to perfect. So that when you enter the third phase, which is the world to come, you'll be ready. That's the purpose. And that says that the Balalashem, by the way, is why the Messianic era goes in stages. Why does it go in stages? The answer is, it takes time to prepare. You begin the messianic era much as you were in this world and then gradually escalate to a final stage of the world to come in perfection. And it needs to be gradual. I once heard an Israeli student ask Rav Moshe Shapiro, why could we simply go from here to there in one step? Rav Moshe said, You think it's easy to jump from zero to a million volts? You're going to be fried. The analogy I have for myself is, you know there's a mikveh that I use around here, a Hasidic place with a mikveh. They've got three mikvehs. The one is called lukewarm, one is called warm and one is called hot. Remember the lukewarm one they used to take the skins of chickens. You know, that's the lukewarm one. The one they call warm, you know, is like um, lethal. The one they yeah. call hot, the government uses for nuclear research. You know, it's like, you know, in the, in the, you know, in the warm one they melt lead. You can't go into the hot one in one step. You know, you won't survive. You've got to go gradually through the stages. If you want to get to the world to come million volts, you've got to go gradually through the stages. It's a time of transition. It's a time of preparation. Robert Tantz, I need to ask you, Messianic era, what exactly do you mean? Is this a time of history or is this a... Yes, we're talking about the last number of years or period of the world as we know it, bridging us to the world to come. So all the people who have died in history didn't have this phase, they just died. That's why there will be two times resurrection. The first phase of resurrection will bring back those people who died during history to experience a messianic era. And only at the end of that will be a final resurrection of everything. But let me stay on our subject for a moment, if I may. Says the Maral, and that's why we have three phases of history. We have weekdays, we have festivals, and we have Shabbat. And he says, I'll tell you exactly what the Messianic era is like. It's like a Yom Tov that falls on Erev Shabbos. Picture the scene. You have a festival that falls on a Friday. So you have the week, then you have a Friday, which is a festival, then you have Shabbos. 
There's a principle halachically, ain't yom tov mechin l'shabbos. You cannot cook and prepare on a Friday that's a festival. For Shabbos, it's a discredit to the festival. Today's Pesach, today's Shabbos, whatever it is, and now you are cooking, not for the day, but preparing. This is not a day to prepare. This is a day to enjoy and rejoice in the festival. You shouldn't be degrading the festival as only a day of preparation for Shabbos. You can't do that. But there's one way you can. If you make an Eruf Tafshilin, what does that mean? You start cooking on Thursday for Shabbos, then what you're doing on Friday, you're simply continuing. You're not using Friday specifically to demote to a preparatory stage for Shabbos. You're simply continuing the cooking that you began before. If you start the work of preparing for Shabbos during the weekdays and you make an Eruv, you can continue on Shabbos. Says Maharal, that's exactly what's happening in history. If you start working on yourself, doing mitzvahs, learning Torah now, and through no fault of yours, you're not able to reach perfection. If you start it now, during the Messianic era, you'll be able to continue and reach your perfection and prepare for Shabbos. But one condition, that you start it now. And therefore, he says, this is the deeper meaning of Eruv Tavshilin. When our sages came along to say, we don't want you to use the Friday, that's a festival to prepare for Shabbos. You know what you do? Start on the Thursday, start preparing for Shabbos, have that in your consciousness, and then on Thursday, what you couldn't bring to completion, the sages are teaching you not only a tool for using Thursday, Friday, which is Yom Tov and Shabbos, the deep message is they're teaching you a life lesson. And of course, where does he get it from? Well, I'll give you two sources. One source is, Chazal say, Avram Avinu, Abraham, kept Torah right down to the little details, even Eruv Tafshilin. Now says tomorrow, why would they pick that mitzvah? Eruv Tavshilin? There are many rabbinic enactments and ordinances. This is the key. This is the one that you're keeping. This is a rabbinic ordinance that teaches you what life's all about. Life's all about trying to reach your perfection. And don't worry if you don't reach your perfection. If you tried and it wasn't your fault, it was God's fault, then God will say, I'll make it up to you. I'll give you a phase during which you'll have all you need to reach your perfection. And I'll leave you with one final thought. The Rambam in two places talks about this. The Rambam says, for example, in the last chapter of the Laws of Chuva, says the Rambam, what's the reason that our great prophets and sages long for a messianic era? Why do they long for that? They should be longing for the world to come with full revelation of Hashem's presence. He says the reason they long for a messianic era was to live in a world with no obstructions and no hindrances, with no wars and no strife and no illnesses. And all you'll do in that world is revel in the ability to bring yourself to perfection, to study Torah unimpeded in order to prepare, he says quite clearly, for a world to come. In fact, the Rambam in one other place, at least one other place, says that when the Torah promises us that we, if we observe the mitzvahs and we're loyal to Torah, we'll have rain in its season and crops in the fields and so forth and so on, which is very perplexing. That's not reward. Reward is infinite reward in the next world, not crops and crops and, and peaceful existence in Israel and fruits growing on the trees. Says the Rambam, the Torah is not talking about reward. The Torah is only talking about guaranteeing you that if you serve Hashem loyally, He'll give you the means to serve loyally. Why wouldn't He? If you tried the best to do what you need to do, Hashem will give you a world in which you'll have no obstructions to do that. Absolutely. And there's another hint in the Rambam that this is the system. In other words, in summary, Maharal has taught us that in a seemingly simplistic, rabbinic, you know, sort of a strategy for helping you prepare for a Thursday or Friday for a, what's being taught here is something incredibly deep. Namely, that the world as we know it 
is actually a world in which beyond our control are limitations and hindrances on bringing ourselves to perfection. But there will come a time which is not yet the world to come, an intermediate phase where what you sincerely tried and through no fault of yours, of course, it's too late to open new accounts in that world. Oh, no. That is. In that stage, there are no conversions to Judaism, no new accounts are opened. This is a world only for the purpose of bringing to perfection things that you tried and weren't able to do. I'll leave you with a final thought. Maral goes on to say, this explains the life of Avram Avinu, the one who began observing the mitzvah of Erev Tavshilin. He says that Avram Avinu lived a life which, unlike his children, included great peace and harmony. Great peace. His children, Yitzhak, Yaakov, went through tremendous ordeals and sufferings. Avram lived a life of peace. Therefore, the question is, why does he deserve a share in the world to come if he lived a life of peace? Says Maral, he lived a life of peace only after his ordeals. He paid his dues. In other words, in his younger years, he went through tremendous ordeals. In his old age, he lived many years of peaceful life, says Maral. Because if you start the work early, when it's difficult, then when you enter the phase in which you have no obstructions, you still get the credit. You get the credit for being able to continue there because you started the work when it was difficult. Another example of three phases. Phase of difficulty, phase of divine assistance, and then phase of reward. Anyway, this has been a brief overview of just one dimension of thinking of the Maral both practical, linking together the halachic, the historical, the philosophical, the Kabbalistic, right? And the more you study his words, of course, each time you go through them, you see more and more layers of depth. Beautiful. Does that link to what you said in the last podcast about the rules of three, being the right, the left, and the middle? How you just explained now that it's the divine providence in the middle that is linking towards the reward and punishment? Beautiful insight. Yes, indeed. We know that all processes in the world have three stages. There's a beginning phase, a transitional or middle phase, and a final phase and indeed that must be the reason it will take more thought to actually work this out in detail but that must be the overall approach to this pattern yes beautiful thank you so much again both of you Rabbi Hirsch for the context the history the background and Rabbi Tetz for bringing the morale to life through his teachings it's been a brilliant podcast I've thoroughly enjoyed it I'm sure our listeners will too don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss another episode and please do send us feedback and questions are welcome at podcast at jaylee.org.uk thank you